from the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. Content warning. This episode contains mentions of domestic violence and childhood poverty. Going from homeless kid in Spokane to graduate of the University of Washington, graduate school at Arizona, postdocing at Wisconsin, absolutely nothing could have prepared me for the University of Virginia's sort of pageantry. Welcome back to Circle of Willis. I am the producer, Sage Tangway, and I am joined today by Kaylin. Hello, everyone. Kaylin is our wonderful production assistant. And we are going to be the main voices here in this little intro because... Our guest is our host, Jim Cohn. We'll talk about this at the end of the episode a little bit more, but Circle of Willis is about to undergo a lot of different changes, and we thought what better way to sort of close the book on this first era of the show by interviewing the founder and host. Exactly. So in this discussion, you'll hear a little bit about some of his original motivations for Circle of Willis and what he's trying to put into the world through this podcast. We really thought this was a great time to just focus on his career and what brought him to the point of being a psychology professor here at UVA. We'll also be hearing some clips from Jim's younger sister, Sandra Cohn. So let's take a listen and learn more about the man, the myth, the legend, Jim Cohn. We wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about your life growing up. What's tricky about that is that I'm very practiced at skirting around that particular topic and not talking about it. (laughs) Do you not want to talk about it? You know, I do. What's hard to, to communicate is that the key theme is poverty. You know, it's it's funny when I say that I was a first-generation college student. Everybody goes, oh, first-generation, you know, high five. And then I go, well, you know, yeah, we were working class. Working class is not what I mean. What's really hard to talk about is poverty because we have it in this country. It's really bad. And I grew up in it. Um, And to the extent that by the time I was 20 years old, I had been literally homeless three times, starting with when I was about nine. I grew up in a bunch of places. I started out life in Silver Spring, Maryland, with my mom, who was 22, and my dad, who was 21. My mom had finished high school. My dad had not. He was a Vietnam veteran who had eventually got his GED in the Army. And we moved to Lethbridge, Alberta, because half my father's family is Canadian. Mm. My Aunt Lynn is Canadian. And she was fleeing domestic violence. My dad was fleeing a affair or series of affairs, trying to start over, start fresh. That was cold <laughs> um, and very Canadian. Played hockey, did all that stuff. For some reason, that didn't work out. I never got the story why we left Canada. I was happy there as a kid, but we moved to Spokane, Washington when I was in the fourth grade. And 
I stayed there through graduating from high school, which I almost didn't do. The late uh, 70s, early 80s, if you consult the history books, was a, a really serious recession. So, you know, there were these long lines at the gas station, people getting mad and beating each other up. Joblessness was at an all-time high. My mom, my dad, me, my sister, and my newborn brother lived, the five of us, out of a Chevy van, one of those big box vans, in a park, uh, the Bowling Pitcher Park. Let's see, when we moved to Spokane, I would have been like five, I think. I'm Sandra Cohn, and I'm Jim's sister. My dad had been looking for a better job, and he found a job in Spokane, as I understand it. But this is where the, the story kind of gets interesting, because they had three kids, right? Like, they have me, Jim, and my little brother. They pile us in this van, and they drive us from Lethbridge to Spokane, but we didn't, like, have any place to live, right? So we were just living in this van, literally down by the river, like that SNL skit. And, you know, and it just felt like something that you just do. I don't know. It just felt normal because we were kids and we're like, okay, whatever. But years, you know, went by and I, you know, I was thinking about it and I was like, we lived in that van down by the river for like a while. And so finally one day I was like having lunch with my dad and I was like, were we homeless? Like, were we like, and he was like, no, I mean, we weren't homeless. We just didn't have a place to live. And I was like, okay, so we were homeless. And he was like, no, no, we weren't homeless. We were just camping in the city by the river. And I was like, pretty sure that's like called being homeless, dad. Then I decided to ask my mom about it. And she said the same thing. She's like, no, we weren't homeless. We just didn't have a place to live. And so we were just living in the van until we found a place to live. I was like, oh, okay. But for a while, like for a long, like a while. And she was like, well, you know, we were just getting things set up and secured and, you know. We lived there for several months, finally got into a house. My, my father, you know, he just died last year. He was a tremendously wonderful person who was very seriously traumatized by many things in his life not least the war, his own father having been shot in Korea when he was a, a kid, his mom dying of cancer when he was 16. He spent a lot of time on the streets just living as a homeless person in his teenage years. All of that was sort of coming to a head with him, and we had lots of domestic violence, lots of uh, chaos. Eventually, my father saved us all by running away because he could not control himself. My mother, however, became pregnant by my dad um, around that time, and the zygote, the, the, the baby, implanted itself in her fallopian tube. It was misdiagnosed as mono, <laughs> and it burst, and she basically bled to death. She was, they, they, they revised her, but not before she sustained some pretty serious brain damage uh, to her right prefrontal cortex. I have all of her old records now after becoming a neuroscientist. She went in one person and came out a different person. My dad was gone. I, I was about 12 years old. 
I had two younger siblings and we had to keep going. So I just sort of took over the running of the house. That did not include income financially. So we slowly lost our heat. We slowly lost our electricity. We lost all of the, the, the things that you would usually use to live in a house. And we started heating the house with coal that I would put in a wood burning stove that we had in the basement. And that's how I burned my house down. I would usually um, uh, clean out the stove once a week or so and bury the ashes in the backyard. But one day I wanted to watch a show. It was a, it was a movie uh, that featured Kiss, the rock band. <laughs> I was a big Kiss fan. Rushing around to see the show, I put the, the ashes in the carport next to the kitchen. And the next morning, the entire house was engulfed in flames by four in the morning. I ran back into the house after we got all out uh, to get the dog and got a pretty bad burn on my shoulder. Then we were homeless again. Did Jim tell you that he blamed me? He let me take the, the fall for the house fire? Oh my gosh, no, please, please tell me. Oh yeah, that. yeah. So fun fact. About two weeks before our house fire, I had been over at my friend's house and we were left unattended because again, it was the eighties. I don't know. Parenting was very different. And we were in like the third grade and we had built this fort out of sheets and we lit the fort with candles, right? Because it was pretty. And then of course the fort caught fire and then we burnt her house down. That happened like two weeks before our house fire. Then our house catches on fire. Like it was a major house fire. Like we almost didn't get out of the house, right? Well, the police came and they're like, you know, trying to figure this out. And they were like, well, we found a bag of ashes in the wood pile. And so Jim's like, oh, Sandy must've done that, right? And then, and then they're like, well, Sandy did just burn down her friend's house two weeks before and her parents are like going through divorce. So then it was like, I'm this like tiny pyromaniac child or something that has like emotional problems and is like burning down houses. It became a thing. And then years later, he's like, yeah, I, I was the one who put that ashes in the wood because I, I didn't want to take them to the garden. So real nice, Jim Cohn. But for like years, like that they, that was on me. Moved back into the house just in time for it to get foreclosed. And then on and on and on. There were many times where we just couldn't eat. I had to steal food from the grocery store. Anyway, I barely graduated from high school. I was a terrible student. I improbably was nominated by a teacher who loved me to represent Spokane in a sister city agreement that included a visitation to China. So I went to China, came back, tried to make something work at Eastern Washington University. That was a disaster. I just walked out. Was it any one factor or a combination of factors you could talk about that made I you mean, leave? I just had no idea what I was doing or why it was important. I don't know why I did it. So then I went to community college in Spokane for a little bit. The only thing I got out of that was a really bad affair with one of my teachers. And then I cooked 
worked, roofed. I was a roofer for a long time. I went to Taiwan to live for a little while. That turned out to be a disaster. I got arrested there because I stayed longer than my visa. Mm. Totally not romantic. Eventually got in serious trouble for threatened violence and was told by people with badges and official titles that I either had to face the legal music or go to therapy. And I thought, well, these suckers. Sure, I'll do therapy. I'm not going to jail. And that therapy was really great. It was a pro bono case from who was a guy who was at the time the chair of the psychiatry department at the University of Washington in Seattle. I went back and got an associate degree at Shoreline Community College. I was able to transfer to the University of Washington. My very first quarter at the University of Washington, I did this extra credit assignment with Elizabeth Loftus that became a huge thing. And I, my, my future was pretty much set after that. I was going to be a researcher in psychology one way or the other. Started working with John Gottman. Went to graduate school at the University of Arizona. Got my PhD in clinical psychology with an emphasis in neurophysiology. Did a postdoc at Wisconsin. And then I came here. And I was like, what the hell is this place? I thought I was through all that. Are you referring to the class dynamics of the University of Virginia? Yes. As much as life had changed going from homeless kid in Spokane to graduate of the University of Washington, going to graduate school at Arizona, postdocing at Wisconsin, absolutely nothing could have prepared me for the University of Virginia's sort of pageantry and history. It was really daunting. I was, for years, terrified to walk around on grounds. My solution to that was very practical and informed by psychological science. I decided to walk around on grounds every single day until it didn't bother me as much. It's been about 15 years, and I think I've made a little bit of progress. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. Thank you for sharing your story. It's hard to imagine that path if you aren't hearing someone talk about it. Yeah. I think when you're in it, especially when you're a kid, it's your normal, right? You know, so like, for example, when we lived in Canada, we were living in government housing. So the kids we hung out with were also living in government housing, you know? It was our normal. When we moved to Spokane, we were, you know, really struggling and living below the poverty line and heating our house with a wood burning stove and, you know, having pancakes for dinner and that sort of thing. But, you know, a lot of our friends were too. And I think like when it's just your normal, it's just your normal. When you grow up in that kind of poverty and then you get out of it, it's something that a lot of people can't relate to or, or they don't understand. There's a little, there's shame that goes along with it. It's a huge part of your story, but you know, it's just one of those things. It's like, how do you bring that up? Or how do you talk about that or have conversations? Do you have any advice for I that do. scenario? I do. Be persistent and don't think that there's a single path. Look, I never took a college entrance exam. I never took an SAT. I did take the GRE, but I also 
knew that I was not going to score as high as most people, but I couldn't afford, you know, a class or something like that. I found other ways. I wanted to get to the university, but there was no way to get to the university because I graduated from high school with something like a 2.0 or less GPA. So I got an associate degree. I found out about how there was a direct transfer law. And now most states have that. Mm -hmm. Now I have heard, I hope it's not true, that um, transfer students who come with an associate degree to UVA are, are shamed for it a lot of the mm -hmm. time. At least that's their perception. That's pretty dreadful because it's a legitimate pathway and it's often the only pathway available for students. If you do not have money, you face two major obstacles. One is money, obviously, but the other is finding the ways around the first problem are often tedious, shaming, and complicated. And you add those all up and people just get exhausted and don't want to do it. So my biggest tip is persistence. I mean, I'm kind of wondering what was the inciting moment where it switched from being kind of swept up and in something that you didn't know was going to become big and this path was kind of paved for you. When did that switch into like passion and interest or was it already there? Because you said you were still pre-med at that point, right? Yeah. Well, in the years that I was at the University of Washington, this this light came on that I could, like I had the ability to be in the room with really smart people and hold my own. That was that was shocking and thrilling. By that time I was in my 20s, I was not fucking around. I didn't want to go to student parties or functions. I had no, zero interest in, you know, school spirit or whatever. I was going to get my courses. I was going to do better than anyone else. And I did on average. I wanted to stack the deck in my favor in every way possible. So I started doing extra credit assignments or extra research experience wherever I could find it. And that started with Elizabeth Loftus. And this study called the Lost in the Shopping Mall study, or it was known for a long time as the Chris study, which is the name of my brother. Um, because for this extra credit assignment in her class, I, I implanted a memory in my brother Chris for this very detailed story of being lost in a shopping mall that had never happened. When I turned in that extra credit assignment, she asked me to come to see her in her office. And when I got there, she had also asked all of her graduate students and some other faculty to come and be there too. So I was like, What's, what are all these people here for? And then she asked me to walk through describing what I'd done. And everybody's jaw was just on the floor. And I was like, oh, <laughs> something important happened. My life was forever, forever changed. 
people in all quarters of my life at the time, you know, faculty, et cetera, made the incorrect attribution that I knew how to do research and that I was some kind of prodigy. Nope. (laughs) I did not know what I was doing. So I got the hell out of there. Went to work with John Gottman, which was awesome. Studying couples, watching them fight, bringing them into laboratory and goading them into fighting. So easy. (laughs) Um, And John Gottman was a vital early mentor for me. I could go over to his house and he'd make me lunch and we'd sit and learn about math, the math of the, the sort of sequential-based analyses he was doing to analyze couples fighting and then predict their divorce outcomes. I got this tutoring by one of the smartest and most creative researchers of the 20th and 21st centuries. And we got along really well. He, gave, he coached me on cooking my first Thanksgiving turkey for a girlfriend. He coached me on buying clothes. And we started writing together. And that's when I really started writing in earnest was with John Gottman. And so I would turn in these manuscripts to him and he would give me feedback on that. I, you know, he treated me like a protege. Yeah. And I had daddy issues, you might say. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when he, when Gottman accepted me then to be his graduate student, I was like, yeah, no. And I ran, pow, to Arizona. What I had at Arizona was a blank slate and the opportunity to to study the brain. I was becoming confident enough to almost have some hubris. Like, I'm going to bust out of this pedestrian, you know, behavior stuff, and (laughs) I'm going to go study the brain. Right. It is such a big switch. You went from watching behavior. Yeah. Then you go to EEG. Yeah. Very much in the, the structure of the brain. But eventually... Your later research has a lot to do with the combination of those two. Could you talk a little bit about that, like what happened after Arizona? Even then, when I first left the Gottman lab, I wanted to merge the sort of Gottman thing with relationships and brain. I had no idea what that would look like. Early on in that research, I got interested mainly because John was interested in how one partner can regulate the emotions and the physiological responses of the other. I was always looking for a way to merge the brain stuff with the couples, but it was not so easy. Brain stuff is hard and complicated. It does not lend itself at all to interactions. I was doing my clinical internship at the Tucson VA. I had the the incredible privilege of serving as a therapist for aging World War II era veterans with late onset PTSD. And there was a guy who who had never told his story to anyone and would not. He finally asked his wife to come in and sit with us 
He was trying to talk. He couldn't talk. He couldn't talk. And she reached over and grabbed his hand. And just like a light switch, he just started bawling and telling this story that in their 55 years of marriage, she had never heard about his experience liberating a concentration camp in World War II. That really stuck with me. Hand-holding was such a discreet activity that it seemed like maybe I could use that to study interacting cup, you know, couples or friends or somebody you know, with EEG. And so I went to the University of Wisconsin the following fall to do a postdoc with Richard Davidson, and I designed this study, bringing couples in, putting one in the scanner under threat of shock, either alone, holding the hand of a stranger, or holding the hand of their partner. That has become now a paradigm. That's a paradigm out in the world that people use. I'm very gratified about that. And that helped us uncover things about the brain that have changed my understanding of human evolution, of human cognitive evolution, of the physiological mechanisms for sensing pain, for generating anxiety. I mean, initially it was like, I'm going to do an interaction, learn about couples. But we learned so much about the brain from this experiment, from the touch of another person. It's really been sort of explosive. It's probably the thing in my career that I'm most proud of. Kind of has like the same utility level outside of the lab that Gottman's did that you said that you enjoyed so much. Multiple times now, I have held the hand of a complete stranger on an airplane where there was lots of turbulence. I have offered a hand multiple times. I have never had someone refuse it. They always take the hand. And then we have a little conversation about how helpful that was, because it's almost always helpful. Um, now I have students that take my class doing the same thing. Yay for handholding. <laughs> You know, on the one hand, I like it because handholding is actionable, yeah. like literally right now. You can do it. You can do it in the doctor's office. You can do it, you know, uh, at a scary movie. You can do it on an airplane, whatever it is. On the other hand, it's so broadly actionable because it gets down to the root and core of what it is to be a human being. I was wondering, you've kind of focused on other individuals with this podcast. What makes you want to share like other people's stories, but hesitant to share your own? I do not focus on other people for my podcast because I don't want to talk about myself. I focus on other people for my podcast because other people are freaking amazing. Yeah. And I love them. I'm so privileged now that every once in a while I burst out laughing because it occurs to me how privileged I am now. I'm burning to give back. Mm. You know, part of me is burning to give back in a, in a sort of psychodrama kind of way that, that imagines maybe that I'm giving these interviews to my younger self 
Like, listen to this person. You're not going to believe this. Hey, Jimmy, check this out. But that has become abstracted to people who don't otherwise have a seat at the table. The, the, if, there's, if there's a single motivating urge underlying the podcast and the comics that I do, the fact that I use comics as a medium, I, I choose the media I choose because they are the most accessible to non-specialists. That matters to me because I want to open the doors. A corollary to that is the unambiguous knowledge that people in academia are not smarter than the people I grew up with. I've seen them all. I've seen them all. And I'm sorry, my beloved colleagues, but you are not smarter. You have different language. You have privileged access. You have beautiful campuses to stroll around, but you are not smarter. And I want to give the very brilliant, curious, passionate, excited people who don't have our privilege access to our stuff. It drives me crazy that so much of academic work and thought and conversation is insular. It's like, it's all inward looking. But the idea of transforming that into something that someone like my mom can listen to and be entertained by while learning. If there's one thing in my life that I'm really passionate about, it's that. While we were recording this interview, it was really hard for me to not just delve down many of the different rabbit holes that we could have. We have some experience with Jim from working on the show with him, but it was very interesting to learn so much about where he's from and, and how that has influenced his work. Yeah, definitely through working with him, he dropped some bombs here and there about his past. But hearing him reflecting and being able to look at his life in this narrative way made his research seem more impactful and what he's trying to discover about humanity and sociality and how we affect one another. You know, it's not unique to Jim that he had early interactions or, or events happen in his early life that then led to what he wanted to study and, and what he ended up doing with his professional work. I think this is an extremely common thing, but it's not always what we talk about when we talk about research, and it's a huge focus of this show. That brings me to what we're about to do with the production of Circle of Willis. We're actually going to be taking a little bit of a break. Most likely we won't start releasing full episodes until April of 2023. During that time, we're going to be building and building a production style that we think is going to take the raw materials of what we have access to here at the university. You know, various researchers, a lot of different minds, people at the head of their fields, 
utilizing them to answer questions or help us tell stories about the world of research and the world of upper academia. We're shifting our focus away from single person interviews for the most part and shifting it towards asking big questions. Might sound a little bit more like our Halloween episode if you tuned into that. Jim talked a little bit about wanting to open the door and make this information and what's discussed in these upper levels of academia accessible to everyone. That's what we're trying to achieve. We're asking bigger but focused questions about the brain and life and how those things interact. Our goal is still the same. Circle of Willis is still about telling the human stories of the science that shapes our world. But we're just switching around how we're going to go about doing that. And part of that, as much as Kaylin, myself, and Jim all have different stories that we'd like to delve into, part of that includes what other people want to know about. Definitely keep up to date on our social media because we will be opening the call for questions that we might be able to shed some light on. The music of Circle of Willis is written and performed by Tom Stoffer and his band, The New Drakes. For more information about their music, visit circleofwillispodcast.com. You can also find all of our old episodes on the website. If you haven't already, subscribe to Circle of Willis wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more updates. And special thanks to Sandra Cohn for making an appearance. She is a photographer and photography educator based in Seattle, Washington. Circle of Woes, human stories of the science that shapes our world.